1: For another episode of our show. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with Preamble. I've been traveling and just getting back into town. Things are a little bit busy here. I've got a lot going on in the office as well, and I'm planning a trip coming up uh, that I'm going to be telling you guys a little bit more about as well. So I've got a lot on my plate, and we are going to jump right into our interview today. Our guest is Judson Crawford. He's an accountant and partner at Waters Associate. I'll tell you a little bit more about his bio, and we'll jump right into the interview after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Practice with Clarity. This podcast is being brought to you by 3M Oral Care, an industry leader in orthodontics. 3M Clarity Aesthetic Orthodontic Solutions provide choice, flexibility, and control so you can achieve the best outcomes for your patients and your practice. The Clarity Portfolio includes a range of individualized treatment solutions like new 3M Clarity Ultra Self-Ligating Brackets. This fully aesthetic solution meets your patient needs and ensures precise, predictable outcomes from start to finish. Visit 3M.com slash Clarity to learn more. Judson Crawford graduated from Texas Tech University in 2002 with a Master of Science in Accountancy. He began his career as a staff accountant at Ernst & Young in Dallas. After several years in corporate tax consulting, he became a planner for Kane Waters & Associates in October of 2004. Judson has excelled at making personal connections with his clients that help him ensure the best financial future for them, their families, and the generations to come. In 2014, Judson became a partner at Kane Waters. In addition to his role as CPA, he is the executive board member responsible for Kane Waters marketing and communications department. Judson is active in both professional and collegiate recruitment for the firm and serves as a mentor to new planners and associate planners. Judson is a certified public accountant and an investment advisor representative. Judson, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Lance. I'm really happy to be here.
1: We, you live in Dallas, so I'm curious what your uh, sports affiliations are down there in Texas.
0: Number one, my Texas Tech Red Raiders. They're not always easy to watch, but they are definitely number one in my heart. Uh-huh. Uh, number two, I grew up a Cowboys fan. Even I grew up in Houston, but I grew up a Cowboys fan, so that kind of stays with you. And you know, so win or lose, no matter how bad they are on Sundays, you'll find me watching the Cowboys. They didn't do too well this past week.
1: Dedicated football fans down there in Texas for sure. That's right. That's right. Tell us a little bit about yourself, um, a little bit about, I guess, your your background or your family, uh, how you started working with dentists, how that attracted you, and how you ended up kind of focusing a little bit on orthodontics.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, being a a CPA, coming out of business school, I never really thought that I would be working in the dental field uh, and and know so much about that field. I, I knew when I was at Ernst & Young that I wanted to get into personal planning. And so when I started looking for jobs and personal planning as a CPA, I, I really found two different paths. One was people wanted me to do their tax returns, which I was trying to get out of. Uh, and number two is companies that wanted me to sell products, uh, which I really wasn't interested in. And so i had kind of quit actually looking and, and kind of resigned myself to staying for a while. And a recruiter called me and, and told me that there was this firm and and they worked with dentists. And I kind of shrugged it off. But finally, I said, OK, I'll I'll, I'll check it out and see what it's about. When I went to my interview, I had the opportunity to sit in on one of the planning meetings at Waters, and what I found was that it was really full-service financial planning uh, and very personally-based, a lot of relationship-based financial planning, and and it just really sat well with me. So in 2004, I moved over, and uh, the rest is history. I'll be there for 14 years this year and you know our firm focuses uh, in the dental field about 95% of our 2000 clients are dental or dental specialists specifically in orthodontics uh, in about 2007 i realized that we were frankly treating our orthodontists a little bit like our general dentist when we asked for information we sent them the same practice monitor we sent our dentists you know asking them Frankly, how many crowns do you have in a month? And and we just weren't catering to our orthodontists. We were just sending them the same information. And so I I had had a handful of orthodontic clients, and I really wanted to understand the business and how different it was from dentistry. And eventually that led to us developing our orthodontic practice comparison report with our orthodontists and really focusing more on the orthodontic industry. So, me and a handful of our planners uh, have really focused on that, grown our orthodontic business. We serve approximately 385 orthodontics uh, at this time.
1: Uh, I've got a number of questions here. I'm, I'm excited to have you here so I can ask you some of these things that have been on my mind. But I want to actually start with newer doctors or recent graduates, people coming out of school. Maybe they're coming up to you at meetings or you're meeting them at different functions and they're, they're saying, you know, how do you view the orthodontic landscape as a whole? Should people be thinking about purchasing a practice or starting a practice? What kind of advice are you giving people here in 2018?
0: Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of call it trepidation from from kids coming out of uh, residency now. Number one, there's a there's a huge load of, of student loan debt, as anybody listening probably knows. And so I think that the safe answer for a lot of people seems to be, hey, if I can just find a job that pays me a daily rate, um, you know, then I can get on my feet, and that's great. I think that historically, for an orthodontist, we would definitely say, hey, if you can buy a practice and walk into that cash flow then that can provide immediate cash flow after debt payments, which is really, frankly, can be easier than starting up your own practice. And so that's really been something that that we focused on with our firm, helping people transition in, um, having services for buyers to look at practices and things like that. One of the problems that we're finding with buying practices is that over the past 5 to 10 years, The number of buyers has significantly increased in the market. And what I mean by that is that, you know, instead of just the residents coming out of school and looking for a senior orthodontist that's ready to sell, you have a lot of other people entering the markets. You know, one of the big things right now that everybody's very aware of are the corporate groups that are buying up practices as fast as they can. So now young orthodontists are faced to compete against that factor. The second thing that, that has been huge over the past five to 10 years, and this is probably established orthodontist way of fighting that corporate model, is individual orthodontists that are going and buying other practices in their local area and going to three, four, five locations and becoming sort of their own small corporate group. So now, you know, you do have, uh, I feel like, an increased level of competition In order to get the same practice that that you may have gotten 10 years ago. Now, that's not a discouragement for people not to look for practices uh, at all, because I think that that is a very viable way. But what that does result in, I think, is more orthodontists saying, well, I can't find anything maybe in the area that I want, or can't find anything that, that looks good to me. And so more maybe choosing to start up their own practice, which it can be a long road to do. Um, obviously, the way orthodontics works with collections lagging by 12 to 18 months, you know, it can be hard and, and you can't really expect to start a practice and not have income elsewhere, whether that be spousal income or whether that be associate income. Right. If you're starting your own practice, you know, it's going to take some outside funding for you to live off of, frankly. Yeah. Ah, uh, the working capital that a bank will will lend will only go so far. So you know, I, I do think that again, there's a lot of real benefits to buying a practice. But if you're exhausted because you can't find one in the area that you're in, then starting up is becoming you know again, I think a little bit more popular. The other thing that I'll say to the young orthodontist, and, and it's easy for me who lives in Dallas, a big city, to say this. Depending on what your primary motivation is, I think people can really, can really serve themselves by expanding the locations in which they're looking to buy a practice. And and what I mean by that is, is, you know, there are people that obviously, because of family connections or school connections or whatever it is, they say this is where I want to practice. And so they're going to limit themselves to the opportunities that are in a, a certain region. But if there are people out there that say, you know what, I'm I'm willing to look at a lot of different locations Because I'm looking for the best opportunity, business wise, for myself, then the reality is is that you may be finding more rural locations that you may not have thought about, but that may provide opportunities for you to find a practice that's doing one or two million dollars without as much competition as maybe being in in a big city. So you know what I would say to a young orthodontist is is that you know if you're not tied down to a certain location and you're willing to really expand. Where you're looking to buy a practice, then you're probably going to have a better chance of finding something that suits you.
1: I, I can't agree more with with all of your advice. I think that uh, the student debt thing is is a, is a real thing. But my philosophy always was, well, I'm in this deep. I might as well go all in at this point and try to purchase a practice. And I do agree that if you can look in some places that maybe there's not you know, so many orthodontists trying to practice, you're going to be a little bit more successful. So those are things that ring true to me in my experience as well.
0: One more thing I'd say just in, in in listening to you say that is, you know, for the younger orthodontist that's listening, even though you have student loan debt, there are plenty of banks that are very willing to lend you money to purchase or start up a practice based on their history and orthodontics. So don't think that because you may have you know, three hundred, five hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars in debt that you just cannot get funding to buy or start a practice because you can. And the reason you can is because these banks have fantastic history of knowing that orthodontists pay their debt.
1: Yeah, I was I was surprised you're right. Up until the closing, that the bank was going to actually loan me the money. I was kind of thinking that at some point they're going to realize that you know, this is a bad idea. And, and uh, but but you're right. They seem to to go for it, and I think that's because we're we're in a great profession. That's right. Let's fast forward a little bit. Orthodontists that are in practice for a couple of years, uh, maybe the practice is is doing well, and they've hired a accountant or a practice you know advisor to help them a little bit. And one thing that a lot of accountants provide. Our reports, we get back profit and loss. We get back, uh, you know, expense reports and, and and whatever else. And I and I get the feeling talking with some of my friends that we get these financial statements and we kind of look at them and we don't really understand what we're supposed to do with them. Like, how do we dig in and you know extract some actionable information out of these reports?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And actually, when I go speak in different places and at some of our different seminars, I talk about this very thing because you're 100% right. Orthodontists across the country, are paying for a CPA to prepare compiled financial statements. And then they sit there on their desk, you know, or on their computer. Uh, And so if you don't mind, I'll tell you a little story about one of my clients that pertains to this. and, And he's actually a general dentist. And for the first, I don't know, three to five years that we worked together, he was doing his own QuickBooks in his office And so when he printed out his profit and loss report, it was literally like seven pages of detail in no order that you could tell. And it just was a non-usable statement for him. And and, and he didn't understand, he could not understand how to manage costs in his business. He was really succeeding in spite of himself. And so finally, I convinced him to hire our accounting uh, department to, to give him concise books. What it did for him is what I would want for your, for your audience. And that is number one, you need to have an organized financial statement. You know, we'll probably talk about some of these costs later, but the way that we lay out our financial statement is, you know, no more than two pages max. You have your revenues at the top. You have direct expenses next. Then you have a section for fixed expenses and then you have a section for owner cost and it allows you to have these sections of expenses. And they're not just there because it looks pretty, but because by separating them into direct and fixed expenses, you know, we can manage those costs by looking at them on a month to month or year over year basis. So consistency and concise reports is hugely beneficial. The second thing I would say is if you don't already have your CPA or your bookkeeper put in percentages Next to the expense categories. And and what I mean by percentage is a percentage of collections. So I know later in the podcast we'll probably be talking about some different costs. And we always help our clients by saying, look, the the orthodontic industry right now is averaging 3% in marketing costs. And so then we can look very you can look very quickly at your financial statement and say, okay, where am I? You know, where am I averaging? Do I need to do I need to cut or maybe invest in that? Maybe it's an opportunity for you. And so those percentages actually are very useful because, frankly, if you're looking at a six month financial statement and you just see a lump sum that you've spent fifty thousand dollars in advertising, it's just kind of like, well, okay, I spent fifty thousand in advertising. What does that really <laughs> mean? Yep. Uh, and and so you need to be able to have some metrics to compare to. You know, in talking about the financial statement, you know, one of the things that you and I briefly discussed was that one trend that we're seeing in orthodontics is actually a lessening of the net income in in practices. And what I mean by that is, is the net after our direct and fixed expenses has been creeping down over the past three to five years. Uh, It used to be that our average orthodontist net over 50% before the doctor costs. uh, and, And in 2017, that was down to 46%. And the primary culprits in that department are ortho supplies, with the emergence of of self ligating brackets and more expensive options there, yep. Uh, and then secondarily, lab cost with the emergence of things like Invisalign and other more expensive appliances that that people are choosing to use in their in their patients' mouths. If you can understand that, hey, the average is you know seven percent north of surprise, supplies and three percent in lab, and then understand that if you're over those, maybe managing those down to the average may increase your net income, then there's a lot of power in that monthly financial statement as opposed to it being just some paper that you can burn.
1: That's exactly how I try to manage my statements is with the percentages. I think that's a really key thing is if you if you don't understand what the expense is as a percentage of your collections, it's hard to make any you know, actionable thing. And it's hard to compare. Like you say, sometimes these comparisons become very useful it's a challenge for us. I think you know, orthodontists we like our, our fancy toys, our fancy things. And I do think that some of these things actually improve patient experience quite dramatically. Absolutely. But we have to understand how that's affecting our bottom line and, and be, I guess, conscious. Is that a trade-off we're willing to make? You know, do we want to have scanners for our patients instead of impressions and, and just be totally fully aware of, how that's reflected on the bottom line and what perhaps we're uh, we're giving up to make that happen, which, you know, that might be a good trade-off.
0: Well, absolutely. You know, I'll give you, again, a real brief example. We had a young doctor in the office not too long ago, great guy, but he was struggling financially. He had bought a practice, collections were down a little bit, and he was struggling financially. And when we dug into his financial statement, what we realized is, is that his lab costs were extremely high. And so when we discussed that, you know, we found that those were that he was he was doing a ton of Invisalign. And I don't care if patient or if if my clients do Invisalign or Sure Smile or whatever, I, I'm really looking at it from a profitability standpoint. And from his standpoint, with his debt load and the overhead and the practice, what we said is, is hey, your lab costs are just way too high. You cannot afford this right now. You know, this is something that that you probably need to step back on a little bit unless it's absolutely necessary in order for you to afford to operate. Now, I know that's a that's kind of an outlier of a situation and not everybody needs to take that advice, but for this young doctor, with the way that he was financing patients, they were putting very little down and he was having to foot the full lab bill and it just wasn't sustainable for him.
1: Yeah, I think it's great advice, actually, and I think it's advice that people need to hear. You know, I think that... You know, there are uh, manufacturers, orthodontic supply companies or labs that really promote their modality of treatment as being superior and and actually almost being like essential to your practice success. And if you were to deviate from that, that somehow you're going to jeopardize your your practice success. And I think that it's great to hear this kind of from the other standpoint, which is saying... No, you have more decision here. You're the doctor. You can make a decision as to what system you're going to use, what products you're going to use. And, and maybe sometimes, you know, you do need to alter that a little bit because there are some financial realities behind those decisions.
0: Well, and I think that you made a really good point that, that there are, obviously, there are treatment decisions that you guys have to make as orthodontists, but you can't turn a blind eye to the financial reasons that you make those same recommendations. They go hand in hand um, and you have to look at both of them.
1: You mentioned Judson marketing. You know, I think that's a big thing that a lot of people are thinking of. They think, oh, if I can grow my top line number, then hopefully that'll trickle down and uh, increase the you know, net income of the practice or or whatever the goals are for growth. What have you seen are the things that successful practices are doing? If someone comes to you and says, hey, I, I need to grow my practice. What are these other 385 orthodontists doing to be successful? And, and you know, what are the ways that we can spend money to to hopefully get a good ROI?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One thing I will say that has has absolutely been a trend over the last, you know, five to 10 years is that my orthodontists strongly believe that the power of their referrals is decreasing. And and what I mean by that is, you know, you may have a best friend that's a pediatric dentist that sends you 80% of what he does, and that's fantastic. But in too many cases. The general dentists and or the pediatric dentists are more likely to say, look, hey, hey, there's there's a couple good guys in our area. There's three good guys. Here are their cards, you know, call them all. Sure. You know, or frankly, they may be doing it in their own office. And so the reliance on referring doctors is decreasing. And the the other thing I will say is I think that less and less of our orthodontic clients. Are relying on more traditional types of external marketing. And what I mean by that is radio mailers, uh, things of that nature. There are still some that in their areas they can get away with that, especially in smaller rural areas. But in, but in a big, uh, in a larger urban area, you know, if you send out a mailer, a lot of times it's lost between all the other Tuesday mailers that we get. And so what I see really, to be honest with you, and my really successful practices are just a handful of things. Number one, having a strong digital presence that goes along with, in my mind, a strong social media presence. Um, I know that a lot of the, the younger orthos are very strong in their, in their digital and social media, but there are still a lot of people that, that don't rely upon that. And when we think about it, we go, okay. Who is it that's making the decision on orthodontic treatment? And that is 95% of the time, the mother. The mother's making the decision on who who they're going to go see for their children's orthodontic needs. And so you have to cater to them. And frankly, women ages 25 to 45, they are on social media. And so you have to be there. I I know that a lot of people say, well, I'm not on it. Well, okay, but your practice needs to be, okay? Sure. And, And you need to have good SEO The other thing, the third thing out of that, so digital presence, social media, the third thing I would say is a really strong internal marketing program. There is nobody better at getting you new patients than the moms that are pleased with how you treat their kids. Period. End of story. And, you know, one way that I would put it, even though I don't know an orthodontist that wouldn't accept more new patients, when moms come into the office, you know, a lot of times they see a really busy, uh, clinic. And, you know, frankly, my wife, um, when we had our first, our, our child, we called and said, hey, we want to get into this pediatrician. And after four tries, we got the fifth youngest one, if that makes sense, because they kept saying, oh, no, he's full, he's full, he's full. And so, <laughs> yep. people people don't, you know, the, the average mother, the average person in society doesn't understand that that an orthodontist, they want all your friends to come see them. They don't really get that. Hey, we have one shot with this one child, and that treatment doesn't last forever. And so you have to remind them. Hey, we want you to send your friends and family. Hey, we want you to bring all your kids and your, you know, your cousins, whatever they are. And so you know, you need to have a good internal marketing program to really voice that. And and if you do that consistently, you will get a result.
1: What I think is interesting about all those things that you know you mentioned is that, sure, they cost money, but they also cost a lot of effort. In other words, you can't just outsource your your online presence. I think we've seen orthodontists try to do that, where they outsource their social media, and it's kind of hilariously disastrous. So, You know, on the one hand, I would love to find something where I could just pour a ton of money into and it would just yield like great results and I could just keep pouring more and more money into it. But it's almost like how much time do you want to invest? The doctor either has to invest a lot of time, I think, in some of these strategies, internal marketing, social media, digital presence, or you have to have a really motivated and with it marketing person, either in-house or uh, that you were working with to make that happen. But it does seem like there's a lot of creativity and time and effort that goes into these things because I wish I could just throw money at it, but you can't.
0: No, you You make a really good point. And, and that is, is that there's a lot of companies out there that they'll say, look, along with your website, along with, with um, search engine optimization, we'll run your social media. And what that entails is maybe some orthodontic articles that nobody reads and some silly looking cartoon with a tooth brushing itself. And if I see one more of those, I'm just going to jump off a cliff. The reality is, is that if you're going to get traction on social media, people want to see you, they want to see your staff, they want to see your patients, they want to see smiles, they want to see you joking around and doing different contests. These are the things that people are going to be attracted to, not an article on how teeth move or why a certain bracket is the best bracket you use it. That's not going to get you new patients. Uh, So you you make a really good point there. What I would say, the, the reality of of the situation for our orthodontic clients, yes, you're, you're selling treatment. We get that. But really, you're selling yourself, okay? And so you're presenting yourself on your website and on your social media um, as hopefully caring, dynamic, fun, all of these things. And that's what's going to sell a, a, a mom to come into your practice, You know, not your expertise on bending teeth, to be honest with you.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about uh, financing orthodontic treatment. There's been some changes, it seems like, over the last decade in terms of orthodontists being more flexible. Even we could talk separately about fees, and I guess I'm less interested in that, but more the types of financing options, uh, extended financing, uh, no down payment we're seeing even. And how has that kind of manifested itself in the practices that you work with?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. You know, one thing that we track with our clients that I would really recommend that your listeners really start watching in their practice, and that's the contracts receivable. So, you know, the unbilled orthodontic treatment. What we've seen in our practices is that that has really skyrocketed. To give you some some numbers, our average orthodontist in two thousand and seventeen had about one point six million dollars in contracts receivable. Now. Uh, To give you an example or to give you a a number, we look at that as a percentage of production. So, you know, for our clients in 2017, our average ortho practice, which may be multiple doctors, of course, produced about 2.5 million and they had about 1.6 million in contracts receivable. So about 65% of their annual production was held in contracts receivable. That is up. By eight percent from the previous year. Okay, well, why does that matter, and why is that happening? Well, it matters because the the good thing is is that contracts receivable is kind of like your your savings account for future <laughs> money, right? I mean, yep. which is fantastic. The bad news is is that it's not showing up in your collections in the current year. So, to give you a, an example, what's interesting is our average client their contracts receivable increased by about $300,000 from 16 to 17. Their collections only increased by approximately $130,000. What that tells you is, is that they're putting much more into contracts receivable than what they're collecting, which really just comes back to what you're saying before. We're accepting lower down payments and we're offering longer terms uh, for people to pay it off. I feel like there are positives and negatives to this. Number 1, I think that offering a myriad of down payments to suit a prospective client, a prospective patient is fantastic. If you can get somebody to start because they're going to put $400 down as opposed to $800 down and all that means is that over 12 months they're going to pay you, you know, $40 extra a month, great. Get them in, get them started. But you have to be careful when you talk about the term in which you finance that one of the things that i have not seen be very successful yet is the hey we're going to finance your braces internally over 36 months but your treatment is 14 months because once your treatment is done once you take those brackets off it's out of sight out of mind and it becomes harder and harder to collect so you know what what we like to see is yes offer a myriad of different of different financing options and, and, and of different down payment options, but really still try to get that collected over the term of the treatment so that you don't end up in a collection problem. Yeah. The other thing that's becoming really helpful in my mind in, in this arena is the digitization of the treatment coordination function. You know, there's, there's a handful of companies out there um, that have really great Slider apps for treatment coordinators where the patient can kind of make their own decisions, see how it affects their monthly payment. I think those tools are fantastic. You can set your own limits on the low end, on the high end, and on how many months and all those different things. And you can do it for each case. And, and so that's a really good tool for a treatment coordinator because it takes that question out of her mind. You know, if the doctor says, Hey, look, on a traditional case, I'm going to accept as low as 400 up to full pay. Then they don't have to go in or come back out of consult and say, "Hey, doc, I really think that this person will close, but they only have this much to put down." You know, give them the tools to be able to to really create that different plan. I think that can be a really good thing. Yeah. The other thing I'll say um, before I get off contracts receivable because it's a it's a really important number in a practice for for a for a doctor um, that has a long term horizon in practice increasing contract receivable is great as long as you can afford it. Okay. Meaning, hey, I don't care, Lance, if you increase your contract receivable to 60, 70% of your production, because I know that you're going to be around for a long time. But for some of our older orthodontists, this may not be very advisable. And the reason is, frankly, doctors are not given full credit on contracts receivable when they sell their practice. So, you know, for a doctor that may be three to five years out, it may not be advisable to to really focus on increasing that contract receivable. Three to five years from retirement, you mean? Yeah, exactly. You you, you don't want to go to all cash pay because then your buyers can sit there and go, <laughs> "Hey, well, you don't have any contract receivable. I'm not paying you anything." Uh, but having over sixty percent contract receivable, you'll kind of lose money on it in the long run. So, you know, managing contracts receivable is a good exercise, and so. Lance, when you talk about, you know, the change in dynamics of, of down payments, which is a real thing, we are seeing our orthodontists accept lower and lower down payments on average. So that is, that is real. And I think that it can be good. You do have to manage your contracts receivable at the same time to make sure it's not going crazy and frankly, to make sure that, you know, you're hitting your financial goals. You're right. By having somebody put less down on a treatment, it's money out of your pocket for a longer period of time.
1: Yeah, the the I think the lower down payment thing is kind of an industry wide experiment a little bit. I'm certainly above sixty five percent of my annual production he- held in contracts receivable. Or you said it was a collection or production
0: of production. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I, I'm greater than sixty five percent of mine, and we've gone to you know quite flexible financing terms, and I think that the you know, theory we're working on and and a lot of other practices is that, you know, even if we do have some counts go bad, that, uh, you know, the increase in production hopefully overwhelms that and that the majority of people will pay us and that we'll have to eat a couple bad contracts at the end. But uh, you're right. It is a little bit of an experiment that we're all working with and and trying to manage that. Good. So I I know we're running out of time here a little bit. Let's hit one more topic before we wrap up. And that is taxes. You know, everyone's, trying to reduce their taxes. And we talked a little bit about this before we, we got on the air here. People, you know, getting very excited perhaps about certain things in the tax code that are big and grand. But when when a client comes to you and says, hey, you know, I'm I'm coming to Kane Waters because I hear you guys are great and I'm going to pay you a lot of money because I know you're going to save me a lot of money. What are the kind of the the low-hanging fruit the area where you can usually see that people can pick up some savings in their taxes?
0: Well one the first thing I'll say and this is so common in the orthodontic industry. And this is not necessarily a a tax saving thing, but as much as a tax planning thing. But a lot of CPAs, they don't understand how orthodontics work. And so what they tend to do just from a CPA standpoint is we look at last year and we say, Lance, in 2017, you collected a million dollars. And so I'm going to set your taxes based on you collecting a million dollars. That makes sense to me. Maybe even I increase it by three or 5%. But what most CPAs don't look at for orthodontists is what their net production was in that same year. So what we know is, is that Lance, if you collected a million dollars in 2017, but your net production in 17 was 1.3, you're probably going to collect 1.3 in 2018.
1: And we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation in April.
0: That's exactly right. And I can't tell you how many times we've had <laughs> orthodontists that get that called. It's like, hey, Lance, you owe $50,000. Uh, hope you have it, type of thing, and so yep. you know if if you're if you're helping your CPA track your business, you really need to help them understand the net production in a business so that you can really track your taxes. Now, again, that's more tax projecting from a tax saving standpoint. Up until 2017, the big thing that a lot of orthodontists were missing out on was the manufacturing deduction. Okay, uh, that was the 199 manufacturing deduction, and for our clients that. You know, make their own retainers that do X-rays. They were getting a really great manufacturing deduction. Now, for those people that didn't take advantage of it, it's not too late to go back and amend for 2015 to 2017. But you really need a, a professional to help you do that. There are some ways to reduce your audit audit risk when you get a refund. But I'll leave that there. Now, going into 2018, the big hubbub have been, has been around the qualified business income deduction. The QBI deduction, and and what that is, is it's a twenty percent deduction on corporate income. Um, The problem is, is that unless you get your AGI income on your ten forty down, down between three fifteen and four hundred and fifteen thousand, you can't take advantage of it. Now, for clients that may be a few hundred thousand dollars away from that, there are ways that we can help them get down into that range. Maybe adding a defined benefit plan, or if you're not maximizing your four hundred one k plan that can increase deductions and bring it down and increase your uh, potential QBI. You know, there are some tax saving strategies like conservation easement investments that can significantly increase your charitable contributions and get your AGI down to that level where you can take advantage of it. But frankly, for a lot of our orthodontists, getting down to three hundred and fifteen dollars to $415,000, it, it's not in the cards for them. And so you're looking at other ways to save in taxes. You know, so we always go through the litany of, of things that are you taking advantage of? You know, are you taking advantage of your qualified retirement plans? Are you taking advantage of all of the deductions within a practice that, that you can? Simple things like running automobiles through, paying your children, uh, if they're of age where we can justify that and moving income from your tax bracket to their tax bracket. You know, are you, are you running qualified meals and entertainment? and travel through your business. You know, there are a lot of people that, that they just don't have CPAs that are focusing. And even though some of those things are small things, when you combine them all together, they can really add up. Can you run down
1: the 2018 meals and entertainment? Where, where are we at with that? And, and then I guess travel might be a little bit of a different category.
0: Yeah, travel is definitely a different category. So, so meals and entertainment in 2018 has kind of been like a lot of the, the tax legislation has been kind of, hey, here's what we think it's going to be. Oh wait, no, here's kind of what they're saying now. Wait, they may change it again because what happens is, uh, as some of you may know, they released this 900-page document. It's a law. The, the The IRS then has to try to interpret it and give us some sort of indication about how they're going to actually apply this law. And so, what it seems to us is is that meals and entertainment within your business are going to still be deductible at a 50% level. And what I mean by that is, is if you take lunch to a referring doctor, if you have um, lunch brought into your office for your staff, uh, things of this nature, uh, what doesn't seem to be deductible anymore is your meals with, frankly, your friends that are referring doctors, meals with your wife that are, you know, she gets paid in the business and, and, and so you're calling it a business dinner. Those types of things um, are going away. So what I would tell doctors is, is that be very specific when you're, when you're coding your accounting. If it's a marketing activity, if you're sending food or if you're bringing food or if it's for a party or if it's for your staff, you know, tend to put that more in marketing or advertising or promotion as opposed to meals and entertainment because you don't want meals and entertainment that are actually fully deductible to be excluded going forward. So it is a change, but it's probably not a change that's going to make much other than maybe a couple thousand dollars uh, difference to our doctors.
1: Right. But can I go golfing with my with my dentist friends and write off my greens fees anymore? It sounds like that's, that's dead.
0: You cannot write off any dues, which you never were, were able to write off. Right. They're also very specific to say that luxury suites, sports, tickets to sports, things like that are not deductible, even though, you know, a lot of people run those through marketing and have for a long period of time. They're specifically excluded if you're going golfing with some referring doctors, again, the way I would do it is obviously club dues are not in there, but greens fees and other expenses related to that one golfing trip, I would put that in an in, in advertising or promotion.
1: Sure. Yeah. And then, you know, you can sort it out on audit if you have to.
0: <laughs> exactly. The risk is low. <laughs> so
1: good. Good. Any other, uh, you know, kind of 2018 tax things that people need to be knowing about?
0: Well, there maybe a couple. Uh, One big thing, and, and again, with people potentially selling practices, people potentially coming into any sort of capital gains, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about is something called opportunity zone credits. And essentially what it is, is that governors around the country have identified certain areas within their states that are called opportunity zones. And what it is, is that People can invest in any sort of activity within that opportunity zone, and they can defer capital gains for up to 10 years and not only defer the tax consequences, but actually increase their tax basis. So not only are they deferring taxes, they're paying less taxes at the end if they invest for a period of 10 years. And so this becomes huge for maybe our selling clients um, that that, hey, sell a building, you know, sell a piece of property or sell your practice. If you have a million dollars in capital gains, you may may be able to find uh, an investment in an opportunity fund. And there are obviously good investors that are creating funds to do this. You don't have to go out and find a building in Detroit to do this. But what it does is, is that number one, you can only invest the gains, which, you know, historically, like for a property, people have used 1031 exchanges to uh, defer or, or or put off taxes. But in, in a 1031, you have to reinvest everything you get. In these opportunity zones, you only have to deposit your capital gains. And if you deposit it or if you, if you invest it in these areas for a period of 10 years, then not only do you increase your basis by 15%, but you put off the taxes for that time. So if you make 5% in investment over 10 years, You know, you actually are making eight to 10% because of the tax savings that you're going to get. So again, kind of a hidden gem for, for people that are coming into capital gains, something that people really ought to look into. Outside of that, uh, for the 2018 tax code, outside of the savings that people are going to get just by changes in rates, there's not a lot that, that has changed. What I would say for our high income ortho clients, you know, a lot of the same things still apply. That applied before 2018 apply now. You know, if you're not maximizing your, your uh, 401k and potential defined benefit contributions and you have money to do so, check it out because that can be $150,000 in deductions that goes into your account. And for some people, some of my clients, it's not because we need that in retirement accounts. It's because they have the cash flow to do it and they'd rather save the taxes than just have it come home. And then, you know, just looking at at, at your typical, um, you know, business deductions and making sure you're maximizing everything because, you know, again, kind of like I mentioned before, you know, if you have four or five things that you can increase with some substantiation, um, you know, I'll give you a, a, a really little, for instance, is, you know, if your clients that have maybe a lake house um, or a vacation home, um, you know, you can rent those properties for up to 14 days and not report that income. So if you can justify 14 days of rental for your lake house from your practice, that may be income that's sheltered from taxation. And that can be a ten dollars to $20,000 deduction for some people if they're looking at that correctly.
1: I definitely think that if people aren't working with someone who's providing some tax strategy and some tax planning, they're probably missing out on some of these things. And and most of the time, I would imagine that some of those savings are going to partially or fully offset you know, the cost of, of, of working with an advisor. I think that, you know, there's, there's some orthodontists obviously who have an interest in this, who really like to get into the details. Uh, Some people don't want to do it at all. Some people don't have the emotional kind of makeup to, to do this successfully. So I, we, you know, I would encourage to, to any of our listeners who are, you know, thinking, I don't even want to deal with this. I don't want to mess with this, to reach out and to work with someone uh, who can help you with these issues, because you know there are a lot of potential things that can be found. And also, as we've talked about in this podcast, some strategies and some benchmarking that can be really valuable. Um, Judson, I really want to thank you for being on the podcast tonight, for uh, taking your time. If people want to reach out to you and ask questions or to find out more about Kane Waters, what's the best way to do that?
0: Uh, The best way to do that is to to look at our website, www.kanewaters.com. You can find a contact page uh, where you can enter in some very uh, limited information and, and we can send you information, we can call you and we can have a conversation. And I agree with you, Lance. Um, you know, really for for our clients and for all of your listeners, it's really all about knowledge. It's knowledge about um, their practice. It's knowledge about, you know, industries that they can that they can work towards. Uh, it's knowledge about ways that they can limit their taxation. And if you don't have an advisor that's giving you that knowledge and is giving you the choice, because a lot of tax deductions, they're a choice for the doctor. Do you want to take this risk to, to run your car through 100 percent or are you more comfortable at 50 percent? Um, You know, a lot of these things are choices, but if if you don't have the choice and you don't have an advisor that's telling you, then you're just plainly missing out.
1: Well, again, thank you so much. This has been really informative, and I hope we get a chance to meet up sometime in person here, Judson.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lance, and thank you for everybody who's listening.
1: Practice with confidence. This podcast was brought to you by 3M Oral Care. We collaborate with orthodontists to provide custom, flexible, aesthetic treatment solutions that showcase your expertise and ensure precise outcomes. Discover new 3M Clarity Ultra Self-Ligating Brackets. This fully aesthetic solution meets patient needs and ensures precise, predictable outcomes from start to finish. Together, we can change lives by creating healthy, beautiful smiles. Discover the clear advantage with Clarity. Visit 3M.com Clarity to learn more.
0: Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.